Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Okay, so there was a tweet you made. Yes. So I tweeted a couple days ago. Uh, and here it is. Programming, no matter what level, is mostly trial and error. So before anything else, optimize for the shortest feedback loop possible. So a lot of people agreed with that and liked it. I don't think there was too many people that kind of disagreed with that, but so this is a really controversial topic to I don't, come up with. I don't know if it is controversial. I think maybe it's controversial because often people are in environments where that's not true, not by choice. So for example, uh, at Salesforce, they have this huge monolithic Java application and the developers their their cycle from when they can actually like test their changes typically is on the order of of minute many minutes to okay. to test a change whereas where what i'm aiming for usually with my programs that i'm working on is like a second so but uh well and the other problem with that long cycle is that you go oh it's going to take a long time i'll freight a bunch of changes in here and then you don't know which ones well it's it's the unit testing problem it's like yeah. the reason unit testing works is you make one little change and if it breaks anywhere in your system you go oh my change my one change did that yeah, yeah. and without that short feedback cycle yeah but that answers because i've been like i'm i'm really happy with kotlin um and drawn to it more than probably most of the compiled languages that I've used. But then I'm, well, there's a couple of factors, but I'm still not going, oh, well, I need to build a tool. I'll use Kotlin. I'm still using Python. And I think a lot of that is because of that really rapid feedback cycle. Yep. Yeah, and so what I didn't do in that tweet was go into too much detail about my actual development cycle that I usually aim for and the productivity benefits that, that I see from it. And so so I, I thought maybe the podcast would be a good way to detail that out because <clears throat> it's hard to fit into a tweet or even a series of tweets. So usually when I'm working on a program, I'm using a, a typed language. And so what that means is that I get... I would say like 100 millisecond feedback in my IDE yes. with red squiggles. And that's yeah. my first, like, that's my your my, my is, most inner loop. I use IntelliJ okay. for everything. Yep. I so that's my like most inner feedback loop mm -hmm. is it, it is, it, it's based on a type system and it is super, super fast. Well, and it's more than just the red squiggles. It's when you're using objects, you say dot and it goes, here are the things that... I hear the possible things. Hear the possible things, yeah. which I remember visualizing this in the 90s. And I, th I even have a, a, a recording from then with, oh, I don't know. There was, I mean, Scott Myers was on it. And anyway, um, and I was, um, I was saying this and they were going, no, that's, that's too complicated. That'll never happen. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and now we and, have it. Oh, it's, and it's, it's like, and I depend on it's it. Huge. For it's huge. It's so huge. Well, what's weird is I, I use a lot of different languages and when I go into JavaScript, it IntelliJ is decent at giving you hinting on on dynamic languages. JavaScript is on in particular, but it's not nearly as exact and powerful as it is in a type language for obvious reasons. So so you'll get all the like I think the idea is essentially in a dynamic language guessing at the possible options, whereas in a type language it doesn't have to guess; it knows. It is, I, and I've. It, like I've been playing with, you know, 
embarrassingly, I only started using the IntelliJ project products like six or eight months ago. And so as soon as I discovered IntelliJ and how helpful it was, I switched to PyCharm for Python. And I've been watching what it does. And it, you're right, it does guess. But of course, Python also has um, the optional uh, type type yeah type yeah so that it can use those and and you see like when you put that in there then it's like mm. oh well I know what this is now yeah. for sure yeah and um, but it's really weird to watch it guess mm -hmm. yeah yeah so that's my that's my most inner loop and and I I th I think as a majority of as a time my whole time working on a program that's where most of my time most of my feedback cycle is spent is is in that very inner loop. So then I have the next layer out which is where I've got my build tool that's actually continuously compiling my application and sometimes the sometimes the IDE is wrong. It, it it's not 100% right. And so it's nice to also have that that continuous com compilation happening and for most of my programs it's it's incremental compilation so it's not doing a full compile it's only compiling the changed pieces mm. and so that usually can be i i would love to like usually have that at about one second for a feedback loop but it ends up being usually a few seconds and depends mm -hmm. on the size of the project and, and that sort of thing um and so one of the things that's made me really efficient is this continuous compilation mode that SBT and Gradle and some other tools support. Nodemon is the one that I use for node applications, is that it's actually watching the file system for changes. And so as soon as you, a file is saved in your source tree, then it does the re recompilation automatically. I don't need to like switch windows and run a command. It just is automatically doing that for me. And so I'll have, I'll, I'll visually have my window that's showing me the compilation results visible at the same time as my IDE. So all I'm doing is moving my eyes over to that window to see the, the compilation results as well. So I have a question. Why are you using JavaScript and not TypeScript? Uh, I've tried TypeScript. I just haven't done enough um, mm -hmm. I, I don't do enough programming on the node side of things to have warranted uh, uh, learning and making the switch yet. Okay. But, yeah. but I, if I was doing something real with JavaScript, I would definitely be using TypeScript. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so that continuous automatic compilation is really important to that kind of second layer out of my developer cycle and getting that feedback from the compiler. And so, yeah, TypeScript would be a great way to do that. But even in Node, there's going to be some things that that it's going to, uh, I think, like if there's syntax errors that, that uh, maybe I didn't see in the IDE or the IDE didn't tell me about, mm. then the the compilation loop even within node can can tell me about the syntax errors as it tries to interpret my my program see that's interesting because in python the oh it's because you're using javascript which is like wild west still yeah um whereas in python syntax errors never slipped through from pycharm yeah yeah nice see them so as as part of, there's kind of then two branches out in my next layer out of my my development cycle which is 
along with the continuous compiler, kind of on top of the continuous compile, I can also do a continuous run of my application and a continuous test of my application. And SBT has some nice tricks for the continuous testing part. Uh, they have something called test quick, or you can specify the test suite or test parameters that you want to actually run. And so what I would really like to get to, and it's, it's not all the way there yet, but I'd really like to get to the point where when I, when I save my changes, it does the recompilation and then it does the testing, runs my the tests, but I really only want it to run the tests that were affected by the by the oh. change. And with SBT, I can I'm pretty close to being able to to mm -hmm. get to that point with test quick. Um, it's it's just not quite a hundred percent. So when do you put when do you write your tests? I I'm not a strict TDD follower. Uh, I write tests when I when I need them. And so uh, that's a really horrible answer because it's very wishy-washy in terms of, of when I write my tests. But so sometimes I think I understand a problem and I think that I can just model and solve the problem with just types. But then I sometimes will realize, oh, I don't really understand this problem fully yet. And so then I start writing the test um, to to go further with that and then go back and and write the codes write the code for that so um so it depends I, a lot of times i feel like i didn't start writing tests soon enough if i if i delay that decision I'm, <clears throat> i i'm still i i haven't i've had like a few experiences where i've actually done tdd and it's great except that I always fall back to realizing that I'm mostly exploring and I don't even know whether I'm going to use this piece of code, whether it's going to do the thing I need to do. Yeah. So writing tests first means that A, I would have to understand it and B, I would have to know. It, it, it feels like it's more something that you do in a production coding environment and hmm. not in an exploratory environment. Huh. So at some point you would say, yeah. oh, I've got my program uh, doing it's like what I'm I fixing need. this bug so that is a place where I where Absolutely. I do TDD right. is if somebody files a bug on one of my open source projects the first thing I'll go do is go write a test to to prove that that bug is in fact a bug because then I want to know did I actually fix the bug I want to have verifiable evidence for that right that's Whereas, the totally compelling reason to do TDD yeah. and then you also want that test in your well, of course, you to want, prevent you, regressions. You, yes, yeah. to prevent regressions. You yeah. want all of those tests yeah. in there, but it's sort of this balancing act of yeah. how much benefit am I going to get by having the full test suite? Yeah. And you go, well, yeah, if the suite is there, I'm getting lots of benefit. But I have, you know, there's that friction thing again. It's like, how much effort is it going to take to put that in there? Yeah. And there are probably tools that could be developed maybe in the IDE that would make that a lot easier, you know, sort yeah. of like some of the refactoring things that they have yeah. where you could say, okay, here's, and th what we were talking about earlier, why do you make functions? That was one of the things that I forgot yeah. you that's for testability you go oh this needs to be a function so that i can test that piece of functionality yeah yeah when you're using pure functions testing becomes a whole lot easier sure. because you don't have to worry about external state mutation side effects mm -hmm. yeah right yeah
So I think he, I think it's really interesting to differentiate kind of the early exploration of a problem versus the like bug fixing and, and mm-hmm. the differences in how you use tests at those different points. When I'm on the early exploration side, what I'm mostly doing is defining my types and defining my functions. And as I'm, as I'm exploring this, a lot of times my functions for a long time remain in Scala as three question marks, the like unimplemented thing. And so what I'm doing is I'm trying to figure out what is, what is this, what is the design of this thing? What's the big picture? And you know, I I know, I, I can't remember what, it, maybe it was the pragmatic programmer or whatever, but they talked about saying, oh, it was really important to create a basic end-to-end, um, you know, setup, and that would expose things, and you think, okay, but if I'm doing TDD, that is in the way of, of getting your end-to-end thing right. set up. So it's not as yeah. simple as TDD everywhere all the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, I in that second loop, one of the pieces of it is continually running my tests as well. And, and ideally just a subset of the tests that I have in my, in my application that are the only ones that are affected by my code change. And that's just a speed issue. Yeah, exactly. Cause oftentimes running all the tests takes a long time and I just want to see, okay, w- what tests were impacted by the code that I just changed and only run those. And then it certainly is a good idea to, at some point, before you commit your changes and and push them up to source control, run the full test suite and validate everything. Um, And so that's kind of on the more outer end of the loop. But so there's another branch of this, which is actually continually running my application as well. And a lot of times I'll have the continuous compilation, the continuous run and the continuous testing all going on at the same time. And so the continuous run of the application, this mostly makes sense in uh, like a server where it can just restart and rerun the server. And then I'm, and then this is for some manual testing. Mm -hmm. So if I'm building a UI, then I want to be able to see that UI or if I'm building, if I'm rest is a little weird because it depends on how you actually test your rest APIs and, a lot of times I try to test my REST APIs not through HTTP requests, but through through actual unit tests to the functions that are behind the REST API. But then there's some places where with a with even a REST API where you need to make an HTTP request to like validate that this particular structure of an HTTP request is gonna work as you expect. And so that can be part of your your unit test or integration test. But what I see a lot of people doing is is like and what I do sometimes is is just run a curl command. Mm. But the downside of that is that it's not that if I'm running a curl command against my REST API, that's something that should be in my test suite Mm -hmm. so that I can actually run that every single time and prevent regressions and have my not have to actually go to a command line and run curl. It should just be part of that automatic run. So I do that wrong sometimes. But um, but I mean, you could just put those in, um, you know, uh, a script, right? You could, yeah. But most most build tools have have most build tools and frameworks have a way to, as part of your unit tests, start your server up, make HTTP requests to that server, as and you can do that as part of your actual unit tests. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So, okay, so for the continual run, it's continually restarting my server as I'm making changes. And I don't have to run any command to do that. And this is where I see a lot of people, they don't they don't get to that level of a loop. And they, they for some reason, uh, people don't actually like this like continual run loop that's happening automatically. They like to actually go to the command line, control C their like current process, and then run it again to restart. By hand. Yeah, by hand, yeah. Oh. And, uh, and that's, that's actually how I usually do like Python or go testing is, is exactly that flow. But that, then you're into like a 20 second loop. Whereas mine, the rerun restart thing is usually a couple seconds, mm -hmm. um, to restart that, that server process. Well, maybe it's just a matter of, I mean, cause I find resistance in setting up some of those automated things and I have to kind of go, no, this will always pay off. And it's just one of those little hurdles. You go, oh no, I'll just do this really quick yeah. right now. Yeah. And then the, it, you, my rule is usually the second time that I do this really quick, I put it in at least some kind of, yeah. uh, even if it's just inside of a script. Yep, yeah. Yeah, and so uh, it's nice if the tools just give you this experience out of the box. And Gradle does, which is great. People have done this on top of Maven. So if you're using Maven with Quarkus, they have this, this inside of Maven auto recompile, auto reload the server uh, thing inside of Maven, but it's not an out of the box thing with Maven. Whereas with Gradle, it's out of the box. With SPT, it's out of the box. And so it's nice when, when the tools just provide this experience out of the box and it's, it's kind of the default. Um, so there's another piece to the run where if I'm working on a web UI, the what uh, the next piece I set up is that my server is restarting, but it's really nice if I'm looking at a web page to also just have the web page automatically refresh. And so there's uh, there's a couple different ways to do this. Um, one is uh, there's there's kind of a standard for it now that came out of the Node ecosystem. Uh, I forget the name of it. Re re reloader or something. <laughs> Anyways, um, so. Your browser, you have a browser extension and it's hooked up to your server. And so it just automatically, your browser automatically refreshes. So in my case, I am in my IDE, I'm, I make a code change, I save it, it automatically recompiles, automatically reloads, and then my browser automatically reloads as well. And so I don't even have to do anything to see that change in my browser. And, uh, and so that's, that's also uh, kind of the next layer out on my development cycle if I'm building a web UI in that case. Do you use the, I don't remember the name of the common tool that automates um, browser testing? Oh yeah, um, I've tried it and, uh, oh shoot, what's the name of that thing? Uh, I'm spacing on it, but, but yeah, I, I've tried it and I'm such a horrible web developer that I I am I'm at such a deep level of trial and error when I'm building <laughs> web UIs that I don't think the the automated web UI testing tools would give me much value. Maybe mm -hmm. the professionals they're not doing so much trial and error, but um, yeah. So mm. I I haven't used it, but hmm. so uh, somehow I think when we started you were trying to get this around to agile well okay yeah so let's go back to kind of the bigger picture is that i i have all these different kind of layers of my developer feedback loop so that i can be as productive as possible uh 
and and yeah this helps us to to build systems more quickly and all that but another piece that i was thinking about to this which is not described by the feed the the latency of the feedback loop is it could be that you're working with technologies that you're just going to have to do a thousand more iterations than somebody using another set of technologies mm-hmm. and so so it's, so my in my tweet i really emphasized the latency aspect to the feedback loop but it could be that you're just using technologies like javascript that are not making your life as easy as it could be and if you'd use typescript then maybe you'd be able to get there much faster and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't still have those those uh, tight latencies but but it could be that you're that you are optimizing the wrong thing mm to to be agile or to be the most productive. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, like what we were talking about at coffee, where we were we were looking at the value of UML and what problem it was trying to solve in the whole quote unquote structured programming revolution. I think you were still a child when that was happening, <laughs> but uh, but it was like oh we're solving the problem of you know complexity and productivity and everything and that was it turned out that no there was more hype than actual substance there and it wasn't i wouldn't you know blame anybody i think people really thought uh this is the core of the problem and then we had to go through all that to discover that oh no that really wasn't the right we we weren't solving the right problem huh it's as an industry, we've definitely gone on a number of, of paths that then we later realized, oh, we were solving the wrong problem. Yeah, I think in the future, people will talk about, you know, they'll look at these things and say, oh, yeah, th- th- this was early days of computer programming and they didn't understand, you know, they were just wandering around, bumping into walls, trying to solve problems. <clears throat> and they didn't have a way to understand what their real problem was until they had yeah. just exhausted those possibilities. And because I think a lot of, I mean, for me, a lot of it is um, cultural and psychological. And when you talk about Agile, you know, look at the problems that Agile is trying to solve or, you know, set out to try and solve. And a lot of those are communication between the person creating the code and the person who wants the code, the stakeholder. Right, right. And and I think some of that has gotten lost in the rush to, I don't know, industrialize Agile. Yeah. And we have friends who, you know, have struggled with this. And what they ran into was not, um, you know, people not being able to use the tools. It was people not wanting to use the tools because of the cultural yeah. changes that were required to do that. And and I think, yeah, I think Agile maybe kind of oversimplified those or, or you know, they looked at those and they go, oh, that's, that's too far away from writing code for, for us yeah. to really grasp. And what you actually do need to look at is huh. um, how... How do the, you know what effects on the psychology and culture that you're trying to bring it in yeah. to? You know, is it even it's, feasible? It's interesting to look at agile in particular not as a a technology problem or solving a technology problem. It's really solving a cultural human problem, 
and there there at the same time there are there are technology uh problems being solved but we're we're also trying to solve the human communication and and culture challenges that we face in in teams and building yeah. things together and this was one of the the things that Gerald Weinberg who unfortunately passed away about a year ago um is famous for saying no matter what they tell you it's always a people problem huh. and look at it an, another way which is a lot of programmers, and of course this is my own hypothesis, is that if you have trouble dealing with people, you don't understand them, they're confusing, you, whatever, you know, you might even be a little bit on the spectrum somewhere, and it's like you have trouble understanding people. Now, here's the computer. The computer does everything you tell it to. It, it might be, it might not do what you're wanting it to do, but it, it it's completely clear. Yeah. And now we bring, we go back into Agile, you know, so you've got this great relationship with the computer because it's totally deterministic. Now we go back into Agile and you've got the people problems that Weinberg talks about and you run into those and you go, oh man, that is too complicated. I, I will, you know, retreat from that because I, it doesn't look like a solvable problem to yeah. me. Yeah. 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 Which is why I like to write. <clears throat> code alone and <laughs> not work on teams if i can and, and the, the people the people are challenging yeah it's, and your computers you're, are easy you're a relatively well-adjusted human so you know you interact well with people or at least you give the impression of that you know maybe there's maybe you've just learned to fake it really well right. i don't know so it's it's interesting to look at agile as and and uh, i think some of the other process-oriented approaches is almost trying to apply, almost trying to solve the problem technically versus uh, culturally or or communication-wise. Like you look at all the development process stuff that we went through in the 90s and early 2000s, and I think I think we were really trying to solve those those communication and culture problems by solving them like we would solve uh, a pro a systems uh a computer that's, systems that's problem. how i know how to solve problems and that's the quickest thing that will get me to that little endorphin bump yeah so that's that's why that's the way i want to solve that problem so it's a cognitive bias issue i think yeah yeah but, but do you think agile was maybe the maybe why it was so groundbreaking was because they acknowledged they acknowledged that it was a people problem yeah and, but, and, but the problem was that then they then said, oh, it's a people problem. Now, here's here's how we would solve the people problem in a computer. Yeah. And and we just we just make the communication. We create a channel, a, you know, a queue or something between the programmers and the stakeholders. Problem solved. Yeah. And and it's like when you realize, oh, no, there's this whole bunch of others. So this is why I think. Well, you know, maybe what we need to do is is incorporate nonviolent communication into agile. I was just thinking no, that nonviolent agile. Nonviolent yes. agile. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah. I was actually just thinking about nonviolent communication because if we accept that we're trying to solve human problems, then maybe maybe the right solution looks completely different. <laughs> Oh, I think it does. And it's it's a lot more challenging to solve because we've been taught from the cradle that 
the way to win in life is to make someone else wrong and bad. And that does not help communication. So yeah. if you end up, if you go, oh, well, now we're talking to the stakeholders more often, but those stakeholders are so wrong and bad that, um, you know, and you fall into that trap and then communication stops. Yeah. And to train people in, I, I mean, I'm still, it's like, I'm pretty good at it in normal circumstances, but you put me into the circumstance where it's really important and I get flustered and don't always remember how to, you know, go through the steps. Yeah. yeah. There is an app, by the way, oh. there's a phone app for <clears throat> nonviolent communication, oh. which is, can nice. I say something into it? And then it outputs the, the nonviolent way to say what I just said. No, it's more basic than that. <clears throat> maybe. Cause maybe. that would be a nice app. If right. I could be like, you idiot, why did you do it that way? And then, and as I say that in my phone, and then it says to you the nonviolent way to say yes, the same thing. When I see this, I feel frustrated. And well, and, and what it does is it gives you a list of, you know, it's basically here are these different kinds of feelings that you can have when, but, but learning to cast something objectively. Yeah, I think this is a problem for Google, yeah. which would be wonderful because it could be something that could calm down the whole yeah. internet. Right. It's like, yeah, if we just automatically could put the nonviolent communication. So when I go to like post a comment on uh -huh. something online, I, my browser just says, would you like to say it this way instead? <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. It's like if you if you're given those examples and you can help you learn the, the possibilities. Oh, yeah. And because that's 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 it's it's a challenge. But yeah. a machine learning system to to be able to take phrasing and turn it into NBC, that can make the world a lot better. Yeah. Nice. I yeah. like it. What's the name of that app? Um, the name of the app is. My phone is off, so it doesn't make noise. I can't tell <laughs> you. You probably just search for nonviolent. You search for nonviolent communication, and there's I, I think there's more than one, but yeah. this one I got. It it has its icon is a picture of a little giraffe because hmm. nonviolent communication uses the um, hyena and the giraffe. So the hyena yeah. is like really aggressive and down close to the ground, and the giraffe has this big picture. You know, it can huh. kind of see everything. So. Nice. So they, I think they even use the term for kids. They, they talk about uh, hyena speak and giraffe speak huh. or something to, something to that effect. Huh. I should and, try that with my kids. Right. Oh yeah. There's there's all kinds of um, books for NVC for children. And I I met one person who was raised her whole life. I mean she was obviously young, but uh, she was raised just with NVC from the cradle, and she was a lovely person huh that's awesome yeah yeah so it's interesting stepping back that when i a lot of times when i think about developer productivity i think about my developer productivity and i think that was kind of where we started and what my tweet was about but there's another side to developer productivity which is collective developer productivity mm. and that's maybe where agile and some of this process stuff tries to address it and what's interesting is that is that is not a technical problem. Whereas my my own developer productivity, I can solve with technology. The corporate collective developer productivity problem is seems like a hundred percent a human problem. 
communication and culture and that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah. And um, my friend Esther Derby talks about this kind of stuff a lot in terms of you know how it, well in and the illusions of trying to apply management techniques, which most of are from the industrial age and and are based on, well, I studied this stuff for a while and it, mostly it was just disappointing in realizing that 95 plus percent of all the books and writings and ideas out there are just total, um, yeah, to, 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 I mean, uh, pointless. And um, it, like, like for example, I mean, it, this is what I keep coming back to is the simplicity bias. And it's like, you go, well, we have these team members and Esther talks about this in a number of her writings. You know, a manager says, well, you know, how can I find who is the least productive team member? Huh. And she says, well, you know, they might it, it one of the things that i hate in the management world is the idea that you can't manage what you can't measure <laughs> and it's again so oversimplified and so it's like you find oh this person puts out you know much less measurable code than these other people so this is clearly the least productive person and we could maybe fire that person or put him someplace else but that person might be the cultural linchpin of the team they might be solving the really hard problems they, they might, might be solving uh, yes they could either be solving the really hard per problems or they're the person that makes the team cohesive right and if you just look at their you know w whatever you measure you look at and and you take that person out then the whole team falls apart yeah and you go wow but i was just using you know the proper management measurements and things like that and yeah. again well and it's it, well, what microsoft used to do under balmer they had the forced um what oh it's the layoff near bottom yeah yeah so the, the they they have a name for it which it's like the, the jack welsh um management philosophy or something right. like that right yeah um, and they, but the term, there was the term forced in it. So it was oh, forced wow. ranking, I think it was oh, what it wow. was called. So, I mean, already when you hear the term force, you're going, okay, this is a patriarchal uh, <laughs> a way of looking at things. And so they would just say, oh, well, we'll do, we'll apply these tests. We'll do the forced ranking. And then the, you know, the bottom 20%, we can just yeah. throw away. And it was like, oh, simple. And it was it makes a so much sense. disaster. People hated it. People, well, we knew people who quit. Microsoft because they hated yeah. it so much. So it's like the the, the culture that it that it inspired oh, was just I'm sure terrible. Yeah, exactly. Forced ranking. Forced That's ranking. what it was called. Yeah. Um, and you know, and you you look at things like that, but at the same time you have to say, okay, the people who are doing that are doing the best with what they have. You know, their whole life, everything that they've learned, the culture that they grew up in, and all that, but. I, I don't know. But so apparently Indian culture is way better because Satya Nadella is like has been doing such amazing things with huh. Microsoft. Yeah. I mean, who would ever have thought that Microsoft would go, oh, yeah, w Linux is part of uh, Windows now. It's like, who would have imagined that? Yeah. The cultural change that he's inspired is 
is mm -hmm. amazing. For yeah, sure. you could imagine. I would never have imagined wanting to work at Microsoft when Ballmer was running it, yeah. but I could totally say, oh yeah, I, I could see um, doing something with Microsoft with him at the helm because yeah. it's just so different. And I think, um, yeah, yeah, it's just. I have to say, I'm I'm so impressed. It's it's very um, inspiring to think that even within the it's a still a hierarchical co corporate yeah. culture, but he's been able to change it as much as he has. Yeah. So wonderful. So in the in the corporate collective productivity side of things. Mm -hmm. Have we really seen anything new and and changing in that world since Agile? And do people even do Agile anymore? I, you, well, they talk about it. Yeah, <clears throat> they certainly talk about it. I mean, and and it's like I've never really. I mean, there's Scrum, there's Agile, yeah, Scrum, but it's yeah. but it's Scrum. Scrum feels to me like it's retreating from solving the the more difficult people problem. It's yeah. saying, okay, well, we'll just focus on how we get our code out. That's my impression. I'm not a Scrum master, so I can't yeah. tell for sure. Um, I'm not a certified Scrum master. I guess I could say I'm a Scrum master, just not certified. I don't know. Certification. TM something. T something like that. Um, trademark yeah so. i mean and that's just that's just my sense of it i could be i could be wrong but it seems to me like the how do we improve the communication between the people who want the stuff and the people who build the stuff so is, we it doesn't seem like in the last let's say 20 years we've done much to address the cultural collective productivity of development teams um, not that I'm aware of, have we even acknowledged where the problem is? You know, we've done things like forced ranking, you yeah. know, and fortunately most people, I th well, who knows? I, I don't know how many companies are still thinking in those terms, but because um, it's much harder to think in terms of, oh, well, this group magically is good at what they do and so we don't understand it and so we shouldn't try and control it i mean the whole point of management i think is to try and control things yeah and so that's those two things are just butting heads yeah yeah and so uh, i i i think we'd actually have to acknowledge that what weinberg says is is true and we have to actually address things as people problems yeah i mean and and that is what Esther and people like her try and do is huh. look at it in terms of people problems, but I'm not sure how much headway they've made. I mean, our friend Barry, who, uh, you know, used to be an agile consultant, I think he just kept running into problems where it was the, you know, the culture, the, the, the management would say, we want agile. And then he'd come in and say, well, here's what you have to do to become agile. And they would say, oh, well, we don't want to do those things. Can we just do the things we want to do? <laughs> and then, and that, and that was kind yeah. of the big thing about people going, yeah, you can't really have pick and, ch 
even though Agile itself is designed to be something that can evolve, it doesn't seem to work if you just go, oh, that part's too hard. We yeah. don't want to do that. Um, and so he just became, I think, too frustrated with the whole thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I... It it feels like the problem that actually needs to be solved, but I've had this experience numerous times before. I mean, when I started trying to study um, uh, organizational structure, it felt like, or 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 even when we were originally creating the um, the self organized conferences, you know, it, it you were doing it wrong because we did it wrong a number of times. Martin Fowler and I were trying to do this and. And it was like, well, that sort of works, but there's so many bad things about it that, you know, maybe it's impossible. And it, but I just kind of kept having the feeling of, no, there is something there. And eventually he discovered open spaces and it was like, oh, of course. Yeah. We just had to let go of controlling this and this and this yeah. and trust people. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of that in there. Yeah. And, and this feels like that kind of a problem where I look at it and I go, boy, that doesn't fit in any of the boxes that I already have in my head. And so it seems intractable. But then when somebody comes up with a new box, you go, oh, that's obviously the right box. And, and what we tr struggle with trying to uh, solve the how do you fund open source projects, it feels the same way to me. It's like I just haven't seen the box yet yeah. that that fits in and so I'm I'm trying to go which box of the ones that I have does this fit in and it doesn't fit into any of them. Yeah. Yeah. I was even thinking of um, I, I wonder if you could post a prize to economists to huh. try and solve the problem of you know, open source funding. Yeah, yeah, open source funding. And I'm not talking about the bug fixing open yeah. source funding. I'm talking about the actual creating of new open source projects, which yeah. is which is because they're sort of starting to fix the bug fixing problem. But that's still that's more of the traditional economic model. Oh, I have a need. You can solve the need. So yeah. I'll somehow give money to you. But I have this need that I don't know yet. And you right. want to solve it by creating this new library. How do we fund that? That's yeah. the yeah so who knows um <sighs> yeah so yeah it's like it, i i i didn't really think of it right until now but um we tend to we tend to do a a pattern match <laughs> and the pattern you know what we're matching we have to be able to write that down so yeah. that's what's in, you know the things in our head already we need w what we need is the pattern that we haven't thought of yet yeah to match yep. Yeah. With all of those things. Yeah. And I think with the hopping back to like the collective developer productivity, I think the world is in a different place now than it was 20 years ago. Our kind of collective consciousness is in a very different place. And I, maybe it's time for us to embrace diversity in a totally different way in how we how we build software like imagine the imagine agile but somehow empowering people that are are uh underrepresented in technology and bringing that piece in as well maybe there's maybe we need to 
maybe the software development world needs to better embrace that into our actual like methodologies and culture and how we actually interact and communicate. Yeah, there's a lot of, um, I think, hidden patriarchal behavior that excludes people who are not, you know, white male Western programmer thinkers. Yeah. And the real tragedy of that is that, I mean, you imagine somebody who is in different circumstances, who's brilliant and, and who would add tremendously to the world, but they're, you know, they, or they look at it and they go, oh, that's just another, you know, another one of those things that's yeah. going to be a, it's the friction thing again. We got to lower the friction for that person to yeah. be able to, and Python has done, I, I'm going to argue more than any other community in pioneering inclusion. I mean, in particular, yeah. uh, all kinds of people who are n- not normally representative feel comfortable joining the Python community yeah. and the community benefits hugely yeah. from that. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. So, yeah. And so you got to wonder like, how do, how does our current framing of, of interaction and in software teams reinforce the patriarchal systems of the past and then how can we change that it's hard i've been in a like a year-long workshop with this amazing person um mickey cashton and who is part of the nonviolent communication community and i just find that the you know anytime she looks at a problem it's um she's gonna say something that like i go oh wow, I never thought of it that way. And now, you know, my mind is blown and I can't think about it the way that I thought about it before because I just didn't see it. And so there's work, there's work being done in that direction, not necessarily in the software community, but, you know, a lot of the stuff could come from work that uh, she and other people are doing. So... You know, we're making progress. It's just frustrating because what the problem is, once you see the problem, you can't unsee it. You go, yeah. oh, that's just this again. And um, and then it becomes very frustrating because you want it to be, you want it to be better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Once you see it, yeah. And you realize that we, and me included, have a lot of work to do to me to, to make it better. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because you discover things that you carry around. Yeah. I mean, I discover putting it in NBC speak, take responsibility for your own feelings. I discover things that I am carrying around. And then, of course, I'm disappointed in that because it was just hidden all this time. And I was reacting based on that. And uh, and then it's work to undo it. Yeah. And sometimes you just don't feel like it. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's like, oh, can I just work on this nice simple programming problem? It's just a regular expression. I can I I know there's a solution to that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah. Technology problems are so much easier to solve. Even when And you can write tests to validate that you've solved them. Maybe we need TDD for culture. Ooh, that's an interesting thought. I don't, 
See, maybe maybe you just invented a new box. <laughs> or maybe I'm just doing what we always do and try to apply what we do in technology to the cultural challenges. But to see, this is the this is the nature of science. It's like <clears throat> science is just trying things and seeing what works repeatedly. Yeah. Well, so back to my tweet talking about how for me programming is mostly trial and error and and I embrace that fact and so I try to optimize my development cycle for that trial and error and it should we be doing more trial and error around culture and trying to change culture yes but it's more expensive yeah it's more expensive and the and the stakes are higher yeah it's so with uh, my study of alternative organizational structures, I finally came across the uh, book Reinventing Organizations. And when I read that, I go, oh, OK, this is what I've been looking for. This is the thing that I was in the back of my head. And one of the things that you see in that is that uh, organizations have evolved over you know, hundreds of years and thousands of years, thousands Tens of years, of thousands thousands of years. Of years. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, you know, I guess starting from the agricultural revolution, we then it was like, oh, the tribal unit is no longer it does. It doesn't Even work. The tribal some, unit was an organization. Oh, it was. Some... I mean, and that's the interesting thing about when you read um, reinventing organizations is that you go, oh, and those things still exist in some form. I mean, we still have armies and schools that are, you know, super hierarchical and, um, you know, relatively primitive compared to some of the other structures that we have. They still exist because they more, you know, they solve a problem. Um, they don't solve it in what I consider the best way possible, but they're still functional. And so that's why they still exist and not saying, oh, well, they're just bad and pointless. Um, it, 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 for some reason, was a great relief to me to see mm. that. And so I think, um, you know, some of the more modern, you know, what I'm trying to do with the, uh, with the TribeWorks software organization is to experiment with some of these concepts and see what happens if we have a relatively flat organization. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it is, it's an experiment, but the point I was trying to make was it's really hard to take an existing structure that has some kind of functionality and then say, oh, well, for example, the incentives to move up in the hierarchy are more pay, more power. And if, if somebody says, oh, well, we want to be a flat organization, I go, well, okay, first thing you have to do is give up your power. And they go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, and I think this yeah. is one of the problems that's happened with Agile is that it, it may be uh, something where somebody has to give up their power and control and they don't like that and so they resist and you end up not being agile. <laughs> and, and my fundamental question is, well, can you even make, can you even take an existing organization, a hierarchical organization and make it flat? And, and Zappos is not a good example because it was already uh, kind of a free-form organization. So making right. it flat wasn't that big of a deal. But even then, they they had some, some bumps in the process. And I kind of 
I, I guess I would say the easiest way to do it is to start from scratch. And so yeah. if you want to do experiments in what you're talking about, maybe what we need is a way to more easily create organizations that... Um, Agile organizations. From from the ground up. <laughs> yeah. Agile, or, or maybe yeah. we need a new name for it, yeah. because, you know, Agile has gotten a lot of baggage attached to it. Yeah. So, so um, and, and actually being able to more easily and quickly create organizations is one of the things I would love to be able to, to help facilitate, um, partly because uh, I think the world would be better for it, but also because we could try more experiments and see what works and what doesn't. Yeah. Because I don't think, I mean, I don't know, it's just such an uphill battle to do it within an existing hierarchical organization. Yeah. Yeah, we uh, at Google, we just did our, like, I don't know, bi-yearly, I don't know if that's right, I don't know if that means, actually, I think it means both um, Yeah. every other it's one year of those things. and twice a year. Yeah. Um, so it's every six months we do performance reviews at Google. Mm -hmm. And I was chatting with some colleagues and we were, we were wondering, has Google ever proved that this, this whole giant performance review system that's in place, is it ever validated that that performance review system actually produces a better or outcome? Or does it just make somebody feel good? Yeah, weirdly enough, I was just reading one of Esther Derby's columns and she brought up that very thing that, you know, performance reviews are, there's, there's a fair amount of evidence that they don't actually accomplish anything and that they're a waste of time. And it's like, well, Google and it's a huge time sink for everyone involved in these. In, right. In the and what you're doing reviews. is coming up with an arbitrary structure to validate something that's actually happening in the real world. And so, I mean, the team members know if somebody is helping or hurting. And so having the manager say, okay, well, I have this structure that I'll put you through. I mean, it's the same problem as uh, interviews. Yeah. I mean, interviews have been shown to be very ineffective in terms of how do you find whether somebody is a good employee or not. And yet we continue doing, doing them because it makes somebody feel good. Right? Well, and we don't have, well, A, well, we have to do something. That at least that's the argument. We have to do something. And this is the only thing we know how to do. Yeah. So it's um we don't have the ability back to the tdd agile uh way of thinking we don't have a way to really validate that these things actually work and so, so well, maybe they just science become part of yeah, it's just not science. just not that's tdd just or science. agile it's just science it's like you have to you have to have a way well in particular you have to have falsifiability you have to be able to say you in science you never prove anything is true but you have to, it, the model just works or it works until it stops working. But there has to be a way to say, oh, it's not working. Right. And the way that you say that it is working, you know, for all intents and purposes, is you go, well, it fits the data that we've had and it it's produces, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's predictable. It, it yeah. creates, you know, if I put this data in, it says, oh, yeah, that's. Here's what comes out, and that gives you, you know, the result more yeah. or less that you're expecting. And so, if you don't have falsifiability built into it, then it's just uh, basically a belief system. 
And and management. <laughs> well, and my study of management has shown that it's, it's predominantly belief just system. belief systems. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can make up your own management thing and it doesn't have to be falsifiable. So you you there's no consequences yeah. for com- for inventing a new system of management or a new management idea. It's like what's weird looking at it as a belief system, you can see why it's so hard to change. Mm-hmm. These things like performance reviews and interview process. Yeah, because there's no falsifiability. So you can't, you know, people just go, no, no, it works. How do you argue from that? Right. You have to be able to say, oh, no, here's a thing that shows that it doesn't work. Yeah. So, hmm. yeah. Well, in, in our capitalistic culture, I could see them, uh, management, ultimately trying to relate it to like profitability. But, like, is that the right thing? Well, and it's so tenuous. There are so many factors that are not measurable that to, to go from here to profitability. But your job is, you know, if you don't sh- turn the company around in one quarter, we fire you and we get <laughs> you right. another CEO. Quarterly profitability. Quarterly yeah. profitability. Yeah, there's yeah. your measurement standard. Yeah. It's like, did profits go up this quarter? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's, it's just... It's very tenuous. I think the biggest problem is that the structure is based on I get a personal benefit from what I do rather than, I mean, and and that's really how capitalism started. It was was people in the aristocracy seeing this marketplace and going, how do I benefit from the marketplace without actually doing any work? And so they came up with that. And so now... It's, it is fundamentally about how do I benefit from this and not how do we benefit from it. Right. It isn't. Yeah, it's very fact, individualistic. It has to be. It does. And, um, and so sometimes it ends up being, oh, well, some people have to be out of work and somebody to, for this system to work. And Mickey, uh, Mickey Cashton made the comment. She goes, so here's the question to ask. Is this, is this benefiting everybody or is this just benefiting some people? Hmm. there's hmm. there's your you know your question hmm. to ask about this thing and um so it's a yeah it, it just becomes very messy and i've had i think my my background in physics i was not a very good physics student but what i did learn was to keep hurling myself up against intractable problems and the only if if i have a belief the, the belief is if I keep doing that, something will shift, something will crack and I'll begin to see results. And, but the process of hurling yourself up the against the problem <laughs> again and again with no success and the pain involved in that, that's like, that was what physics taught me is yeah. to just keep struggling. <laughs> and I'm, and it's not like I'm perfect at it, but uh, sometimes I have to run away. Yeah. I mean, it comes through in your books that you've, you've wrestled with these things until you really understand them and can convey that understanding to other people. So That's... I appreciate the hurling against the wall you do to help us all understand programming concepts. And at least with that, I it's that's always been reinforced that yeah there is eventually an answer i mean even this struggle that i've had trying to understand monads <laughs> and it's really it just comes around to how do you frame the problem yeah. that you're trying to solve 
it's not people would get so attached to the solution and the representation of the solution and so they could say um, you know a monad is a monoid in the category of endofontcurs hey, or whatever did good. i even get that yeah, yeah I've, I've heard it so many times and it, it well because it's such a ridiculous way to describe it yeah. and then when you actually go oh what problem are we trying to solve yeah. then you go oh okay now i see what we're trying to do yeah. and now i see why somebody wants to cast it mathematically is because oh, that that answers um, some other questions not the questions that i've had yeah. but but even that you realize that oh it's it's a matter of how do you think about the problem yeah not yeah, maybe and and maybe that's yeah, maybe that's ultimately what we're we're talking about here. It's like we're not thinking about the problem in the we haven't framed the problems of collective productivity in the right way. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's the the struggle and that involves dealing with all the messy, difficult people problems, because maybe what we actually need to do in uh, control systems, you it's weird because to make a control system stable, often the solution is to inject noise into the control system. And, <laughs> you know, I, I can't remember all the equations and everything, but I remember just having my mind kind of blown when I heard that was that it's like, oh, that seems so counterintuitive. So maybe what we need to do in software development teams is inject somebody like, oh, say our friend Kate Seeley, <laughs> who's an artist and just uh, a free thinker and a fun person to have. And it's like, what if every software development team had a Kate Seeley right. as part of it? that would be a totally different experience. But think about what that would do for creativity and yeah. developer experience. And, yeah. you know, that Isn't could it, be the noise that makes I mean, it. Diversity could also be an element oh, of, absolutely. of noise. Yeah, well, I mean, this this is an example of that. You know, exactly. a non-programmer person yeah. to do that. And then people from different cultures to huh. bring their perspective who have, um, you know, not, not who are trying to conform to the existing culture, yeah. but who are actually free to bring in aspects of their culture. And this is, this is something that can be uh, argued to managers who are uh, quarterly profit-oriented because numerous studies have shown that having people who, who are non non-normative, I don't know what the word is, you know, increases profitability. Yeah. And you could just think yeah. of it as if you have, you know, say, if you have people in the black community in your team, well, you're going to have a bigger audience for your product because they're going to, they're going to say, oh, well, say in my community, the needs are this and you go, oh, we should put that in our product. And now your market is bigger. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, that's very simple. And I think there's a lot more to it than that. I think there's uh, just a bunch of other factors. But to pitch it to existing management hierarchy, you could say, you're going to make more money. And they go, oh, well, we have to do that. 
but it's it's I, I I don't like it. It makes me sad. That's not the world I want to live in. Right. But at least that <laughs> gets us a step closer. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, another. I I I was entertained by our conversation. I think we should keep having these. <laughs> yes. Let's do it. Okay. All right. Thanks.